If you please take your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4 today, as we finish up for our ninth sermon, um, as we've been working our way through this book, this is our last and final sermon. In a sense, there's been unexpected turns the whole way through. There's been things that have happened that we would never have thought of, except for that it's revealed before us. Uh, the various things where we're, we're, we're let in to see Jonah and what's going through his mind. We're, we're seeing someone that's been um, gone astray and then is brought back and restored, and now someone that is envious and someone that lacks compassion, but, but God is not done with him yet. It's kind of sad to finish up this book because I've benefited personally from this book over the last several weeks. There's so many lessons that I personally can identify with. And so we come to the end. For example, we see Jonah in our text today pouting. Do you ever pout? I'm sure your children pout, right, sometimes when they're corrected. But even adults can find ourselves where we're, things didn't go our way and we're sort of upset, and so we pout for a little while. You ever find yourself upset with what God is doing in your life? And if you're on, if it's honest, you're going to answer, well, yes, of course. Everything does not go the way that we expect it. So today, Jonah will learn from God's school of compassion. And so I've entitled the message, Lessons from God's School of Compassion. So let's read the text. Follow along with me, Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 to 11. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it, and there he made a shelter for himself, and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. So the Lord appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head and to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint, and he begged with all of his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God asked Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even unto death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant, which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight, which perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand? as well as many animals. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask today that you would, by your word, examine us, test us, school us. Lord, that we would learn lessons from your word. We pray, Lord, that you would convict where conviction is needed, that you would encourage where encouragement is needed. Lord, we pray that ultimately we would become those who are refined and matured and graduated, as it were, from your school of compassion so that we might be useful in the kingdom. Lord, we want to be those who are useful in our lives to redeem the days, for they are evil. 
We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we said, Jonah's been progressing through the school of God's grace. He runs away at first. God sends a storm. The sailors throw him overboard. He's rescued by a great fish. He's reinstated, recommissioned, as it were, for his uh, it's his mission that he was given in chapter 3 and verse 1 and 2. He goes and he preaches. Nineveh repents from dust and ashes. It's an absolute miracle what happens, even the king and all the way down. But then last time, last week, we saw Jonah, you would think he'd be doing cartwheels because of this. I mean, God has used him in a mighty way. But instead, he's sulking because God's compassion, God's saving mercy has been bestowed upon non-Israelites. And he's becoming a respecter of persons. And so it says in chapter 4, verse 1, it displeased Jonah and he became angry. Jonah's kind of (laughs) hard-headed. You know, God's God's so patient with him. He's working with him. He's teaching him. He's instructing him. But Jonah's hard-headed, and so what happens in our text today is that God brings an object lesson to bring his point home. If, if those of you who are teachers or you homeschool, sometimes you, you get your children to grasp that thought with an object lesson. Well, that's exactly what God does here in our text. God is so patient with Jonah you see, he, he had guided Jonah's feet and his actions into the paths of obedience to actually return to Nineveh after the fish put him back on land. He proclaims the message. God uses him, but God is not done with him because why? His heart is not right. He's outwardly gone through the motions, but his heart now is not right. And so God wants our hearts, and he brings Jonah's heart, I believe, into full and complete submission and agreement with the will of God. So let's consider this. We're going to look at it under three points. First of all, verse 5, Jonah's sinful withdrawal. Do you isolate yourself when you're discouraged, when you're depressed? It's very common. You get discouraged, you get depressed, you just go in your room and close your door. You teenagers, you know what that is, or in your apartment. And you isolate yourself. We saw Elijah. Remember, we read verses 1 through 8 a couple weeks back. We read verses 9 onward. He's running from Jezebel, just mightily used of God with the prophets of Baal. And he's discouraged and he's hiding in a cave. And God gets our attention sometimes in a very beautiful way by asking questions. What are you doing here, Elijah? (laughs) And and, and we're going to see in our text that three times in chapter 4, God asked profound, probing questions to get the attention of Jonah. These questions are used by God to be very, very instructive and to peel back the layers to reveal what's really in our heart. So Jonah, he could not wait to shake the dust from his feet in Nineveh. He preached, they repented, they're in dust and ashes. What does he do? He goes east of the city, and he makes himself a shelter, and he sits there. There's a a drawing I found on the back of your outline, and he's just sitting there just at a little safe distance waiting to see what's going to happen to the city. Is this a pseudo-repentance? Is this a pseudo-revival? Will it really come to pass? And ultimately, the 40 days comes to pass, and he knows that God has spared them. He entered from the west, and he's traveled the whole length of the city. 
and now he's to the east of it. Isn't it interesting that um, Jonah doesn't stay there to say, well, let me instruct you of the ways more fully of God. Let me instruct you in the law of God and what it means to be a follower of Almighty God. He preaches, they repent, and it's hit-and-run evangelism. That's, that's what we, sometimes these crusades, they come into town, they're here one day, then they're, they're gone, right? No, you would think that a heart of an evangelist would be one that wants to be there to nurture and to take that to the next step of discipleship, to grow them along. But he goes outside the city. He holds himself aloof. I'm the Jewish one. I'm the chosen one. Whatever's going on here, he goes outside of the city. He builds a shelter, in a sense, begins a separatist movement already. Uh, he, his his self centered atti- attitude really renders him useless, and he just sits there in the heat, waiting to see what's going to happen. You know, there's a lot of church splits that actually happen because things don't go a certain few families way, and so they go and they start the next church. And so here, in a sense, you've got Jonah starting the first church of Jonah outside of the city limits of Nineveh. But he makes a shelter. Now, this shelter, the word that's used is the word when the Israelites would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, they were to make booths. Well, it's the same language. And so putting together some branches to make a temporary shelter, that's what Jonah had done. Now, how long would that last? How long would the leaves stay green? How long would it stay firm in the hot sun? Probably about a week. That's what the children of Israel were actually told to go do. But eventually, week two, week three, those leaves are drying up. They're becoming brittle. They're blowing away in the wind. More and more of the sun is coming through. And Jonah is very uncomfortable. We're going to look in a moment at verse 6, but it says that the when the plant came, that it it produced shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. The word that is used there is from his wickedness. And so it's it's the idea that this the sun beating through is a tormentor to Job. We sometimes can go through seasons just like Jonah, wishing that God would pour out his wrath upon the wickedness that we see around us, we don't have to look far. We can look at the Washington, D.C., the, the major gay pride events that go on and, and the endorsement of that from our national leaders, even what goes on in our local communities and, and so forth. And, and sometimes we can, we, we're scorned because we're the ones that are seeking to hold up the truth. <laughs> and so we're the ones that are looked down upon. We're the bad guys, and we're the ones that are holding up God's truth. Peter addresses this idea. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. But like Jonah, we can forget about God's great mercy and compassion to the elect lost. There are those who are in the depths of darkness, enslaved in the foulest things that God is pleased to rescue for his glory. Diamonds out of the darkness, as it were, to to rescue them. Peter goes on, but do not let this one fact escape your notice in the same chapter, chapter 3 of 2 Peter, 
Beloved, that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but for all to come to repentance. There's a danger for us as we see the wickedness around us. On the one hand, we want to protect our families and keep them away from that. On the other hand, there's an opposite extreme where we withdraw so far from the culture that we go outside of the city, we, we build our, our booze as shelter, as it were, and we're so far away from it that we're not actively engaging the culture that is around us. We're called to engage the culture around us. We're called to preach the gospel, to take this treasure within earthen vessels and to take that and to share that with a lost and dying world. And so there's a balance here. We need to be careful that we don't go on one extreme or the other. We need to be careful that we don't become in our own, as it were, holy huddle, that, that we're content to receive the mercy of God for ourselves, but we don't want to share that with anybody else. No. We will be held accountable for what we've done with this treasure. And some are gifted in different ways, and this isn't meant to be a guilt trip, but to examine yourself to see, how can I make an impact in the culture around me, in the workplace, in the school that I'm at, and and, and what I say when I respond to certain things, and going out and sharing the gospel and preaching the gospel. What amazes me personally is the incredible patience of God with Jonah. You'd almost expect God at this point to say, Enough, Jonah. I'm done with you. I've reinstated you. I've rescued you. I've done this. I've done that. But no, God's patience is magnified here. Do you see it on the pages? Have you, have you seen it as we've gone through? God here patiently challenges the thinking of Jonah. He, he, wants, to, he wants to, Jonah, I love you so much. You're a picture of, 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 of a vessel that is broken, but that could be saved and that could be used for your glory. I'm going to instruct you in something. I'm going to give you a lesson that you'll never forget. And so he challenges his thinking so that his sinful attitude would be corrected. And how does he do that? He illustrates it with this plant. The point, and the, the point of the object lesson is you have no right to grumble over the grace of God bestowed upon others. And that leads us to our second point. Jonah's temporal happiness quickly gives way to a bitter anger. In verse 6, it says, So the Lord appoints a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant's. You see, the God of the sea, the God that appointed that great fish to swallow Jonah here, appoints a plant to grow. This particular plant, most believe, is a castor oil plant. The leaves go to about 12 inches, and normally it would grow very fast in hot climates, but this grew in one day, so it was a supernatural growth, okay? Jack and the beanstalk fashion, you know, and the, you know, it's, it's, it's there in one day. The Lord cares for Jonah, and he has met his need to deliver him from his discomfort, the heat. And so the Lord shows that he is a father that takes pity upon his children. He produces a temporal relief for him. 
By the way, this whole book, this is the first time we're told that Jonah's happy. Okay? That just amazes me. Look at the end of verse 6. And Jonah was an, an <laughs> extremely happy, in case you don't get it. What? About the plant. Why is he so happy? Because God has finally done something for Jonah in his eyes. It's a selfward focus. God had been doing things all along with rescuing him and reinstating him and all of that. But selfishly, he's more happy about the plant that is giving him shade and producing a coolness than the repenting of an entire city in dust and ashes. You see the backwards thinking of that? (laughs) Something's not right here. This this man is just, he's got things completely backwards. He's not, it's not, we're not told that he's happy about being called to be a prophet, that he's happy about being recommissioned as a prophet after he was wayward, that he's happy about the whole city, uh, the greatest revival in history happening, and that he had a role in that. No, he's happy about the plants. The goal of God's object lesson is not so much to comfort Jonah, even though that's what happens here, but God wants his heart to be persuaded that he is not the one as a man to discern who receives the grace of God. It's a lesson to teach Jonah of God's dealings with Gentiles, those who are non-Jewish folks. So he wants him to see how, how Jonah's own theology applied to the physical realm turns out, and that's exactly what's going to happen with the plant, giving it away. Well, let me ask you, what is it that brings you happiness? What is it that, 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 that causes you to, to say that, you know, that you're extremely happy before the Lord? For Jonah, it was a plant that produced shade. For you, maybe it's a paycheck. Maybe it's a that Hawaiian vacation, maybe it's your retirement account, maybe it's um, any number of things, your children, your marriage, and all of that. Maybe it's just an air-conditioned room on a hot day, which sounds very good right now as we experience this heat. What is it that brings you joy? My point is this, is it external comforts, or is it the internal spiritual realities that as the children of God we know to be true? That's what should bring joy, because no one can take that joy. A fire cannot burn it down. There's there's nothing that can happen except for that it resides forever. We will be with him face to face forever. That's a joy that cannot be taken. That's the joy that Jesus in the upper room discourse is trying to convey to his disciples, that there is a joy that is unshakable, though persecution awaits you. Well, let's look at verses 7 and 8. Beware of loving God's gifts and comforts more than God. In verse 7, it says, and, But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. Put your confidence in things that cannot wither. I was just saying. I want you to consider this, though. Now, first of all, this God appointed occurs four times in Jonah. First, with the great fish. He appointed the fish to swallow Jonah. And here we see it three times back to back. Verse 6, 7, 8. He appoints the plant to grow. He appoints the worm to attack it. And he appoints the hot wind to make it wither even faster. In verse 8. So God, but, but the fact that we, as we love the sovereignty of God, 
to consider the fact that God appointed a worm, something small, something that probably Jonah did not even see. It could be the size of a maggot. Something was just enough to attack the root of that that the plant was weakened. That is the God that we serve. A God that rules the waves, that rules the world, that rules the galaxies, but that also commands the most minute, senseless creatures on the planets. That's how God is. That's a God to be in awe over. It's amazing. Everything from the creation to the heavens and all of that to the saving of the elect, God is sovereign over, and here he appoints a worm. Of course, in Acts chapter 12, we know uh, he appointed some worms there too with Herod. Remember that? He didn't give glory to God and he was eaten by worms. But picture the scene. This weevil or whatever it was that attacked the root, the plant begins to wither. Now, this is before dawn. The sun comes up. It's getting hotter. It's getting hotter with each passing hour. The leaves begin to wither. And then picture like our Santa Ana winds. You know, when you see like all the loose leaves on trees finally blowing off, there's this east, scorching east wind, we're told, that, that descends so that the sun beats down on Jonah's head. Sort of like when you're driving through the Arizona desert and you stop at a rest stop and you've been inside your air-conditioned car and it's summertime and you get out and you have that blast furnace feel. That's, that's what God sent in addition to the worm, so that his little plant would be quickly taken away. The same word, verb, attacked, is actually in verses 7 and 8. So the, the worm attacks the plant, and then also the, the wind attacks Jonah's head and the original. But something to consider is that God is with us in the most severe trials. Jonah is probably experiencing sunstroke, He wants to die at the end of verse 8. Death is better for me than life. He's had it. (laughs) He's had his little temporal comforts, and it's been quickly taken away. One commentator said that the shoe Jonah wanted Nineveh to wear was now on his own foot, and it pinched. You can see where this is going. Jonah complains it would be better for him to die. In verse 3, it was because his theology didn't agree with um, what, what had happened with the revival. Remember, he says, you're compassionate, you're gracious, you're loving kindness, and so forth. Now he wants to die because of a plant. He's concerned about himself. He could care less about Nineveh at this point. It's all about Jonah. And he gets the taste of this. Really, it's a taste, a small taste of God's judgment as he sends the worm. So with the loss of the plant, Jonah despairs of life. He's, but he's so self-focused. And, you know, this is a, a reminder for us against selfishness. Because when you're selfish, you become so self-absorbed that nothing else really matters. Other people have t- take second fiddle to you. You complain. There's no joy in your life. You can't give glory to God and such things. And so the cure is to lift up our eyes and to look up to the Lord and to see what He is doing in our realm of influence. To see His great plan for the salvation of sinners. To share the passion and compassion that God has for the lost who have yet to be saved and hear the gospel. Well, verse 9 
Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even unto death. Well, again, I mentioned earlier, these questions can be very instructive for us. Way back in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, after Eve had been duped, the Lord called out to the man, where are you? Later, in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I've commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you you have done? Later in chapter 4 with Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he says, what have you done? Again, the purpose is to peel back the layers to expose our sin. 1 Kings 19, same thing with Elijah we, we saw earlier. Isaiah, as he sees the glory of God, who will we send Send me, O Lord. Luke 22, Jesus said to them, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? See, these are meant to be instructive times. And so the first question God asked, we saw last week in verse 4. Do you have good reason to be angry? Okay, the question he asked in our text now is almost the same. So the first question, he's It's as though God's saying, Jonah, we're looking at at this situation differently. The salvation of these pagans, we're looking at it differently. You need to see it through my eyes. Or of Romans 3, 4, rather let God be found true and every man a liar. But now he asks the second question. You have good reason to be angry, and he adds these words, about the plant. (laughs) You have good reason to be angry, about the plant, and this is a forceful question meant to prick his conscience. And of course, he says, yes, I do. What did this plant really mean for Jonah? He couldn't have been that close to it. It was there one day and gone the next day. Jonah, it's as though God is saying, your concern is not motivated by anything but selfishness. You did not tend to this plant. You did not plant this plant. You did not water this plant. You did not nurture this plant. Think of how the gardener must have felt. The one who has planted and watched it grown, and now it is dying. And so he's he's building up this illustration. It's as though God says, your pain is nothing compared to mine if I were not to show mercy to all of these people, and yet you're upset over a plant. Those whom I love, I discipline, it says in Revelation 3.9. It's amazing. 120,000, what I believe to be children, who do not know their right from their left, as well as all these animals, and these animals, by the way, do not have a sinful nature, so they don't, don't, they're not obligated to be wiped out in God's judgment. And so if God chooses to spare them, why can't he? Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? Because I have good reason even unto death. We've talked about God's anger last week. I want to mention it again. When you begin to allow yourself to become angry and let that reside for quite a while and it, and it builds into resentment, what happens is, if you let that fester, is that you become angry over the most silly trivial things. 
dropping a piece of paper. Maybe your shoelace breaks, you know, in, in the morning when you're tying it. Because you've got this anger already inside. And that's exactly what Jonah is doing here. He's becoming so angry, even angry unto death, over a plant. He wants to die. He would rather die than take his personal, than deal with his discomfort that he has. Maybe some of you have been living for all the wrong reasons and putting your joy and your confidence in something that, 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 that shouldn't be, something that's temporary, something that's fleeting, something that's here today and gone tomorrow. You need to be aware of thinking that it's all about you and the selfish mentality that we can fall into and fix our eyes on Christ. Look at Him as the example, as one who is selfless, and especially you husbands including myself. We need to demonstrate a selflessness in our service to our wives and ministering to our families. Is there an uncomfortable trial you're going through right now where the sun's beating through the shelter on your head? Is there some difficulty in the workplace, in your family, um, schooling? Is there some difficulty you're going through where you've taken your eyes off of Christ and now you've you've focused on this temporary pleasure or this trial so much that it's just crippling you and your usefulness in the kingdom? We must look to Christ. Look at it as an opportunity to understand God's redemptive grace and the greater scheme of things, that it's more than just about you. Well, we've seen Jonah's sinful withdrawal. We've seen this temporal happiness that's led to a bitter anger. Now, finally, uh, the last point. Jonah's lesson is firmly applied, and it's really an argument from the lesser to the greater, and we've already been discussing it. Do you take for granted God's good gifts in your life? The book ends with a question, and it's, it's really a, a, a compound question in verses 10 and 11. And it's not an accident. We're meant to conclude some things from this. It's an open-ended question, but we know that there is a conclusion. It's really a huge contrast. Let's read it again. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow. It came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are all these people, probably over a half a million people, if you include the adults and everything. Should I not have compassion on them? The Creator is obligated not to ask Jonah's permission on who receives God's mercy. In our Lord Jesus Christ, during His earthly ministry, we see Him again and again in in various situations moved with compassion. And Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and, and he demonstrates a life of compassion on touching lepers, feeding the, the multitudes, healing the lame and the crippled. There is nothing that escapes the eye of God. When a sparrow falls to the ground, he sees it. And so here, you, you have this, this uh, rhetorical argument here, this, this question that is being placed before Jonah that... that I believe Jonah recorded here. And it's, it's meant for us to think that, that this is meant to be an affirmative. Of course you can have compassion, O oh God. Of course I see the folly of my way. 
It implies agreement. Jonah himself is the source for the information in this book. We're not given Jonah 4.12, but Jonah. (laughs) We've seen but Jonah a few times. That's not there. Jonah wants us to conclude that he has submitted to God's will, that he has understood finally the grand scheme of God's plan of compassion even towards unworthy pagan Gentiles. Jews are unworthy too. It's the idea that God can show mercy on whoever he wants to. Jonah no doubt wrote this after he had repented and gotten right with God. Jonah has now finally lost his life so that he might find it, to use the language of discipleship from Mark 8.4. Jonah, I believe, is broken. I think he's become now a true missionary, one that has a heart of an evangelist, one that truly wants the good for those that are out there. Jonah, I believe, has been transformed. How do I believe that? By his silence. He doesn't add anything else beyond this. There's only one other book in the Bible that ends with the question. We actually went through it. Nahum, remember? And that's a book about Nineveh, ironically. But it's very rare. I want to challenge each of us. We need to, first of all, be careful not to build our kingdoms around ourselves. Again, that selfishness that I was talking about earlier. And another application is that we should look on our community, San Diego, with compassion, pity, the lost that are out there, the communities that are just so low, the homeless population, the the heavily drug-infested area, the prostitutes, the hill crust even with the homosexuals in that area is growing and growing and growing. We look upon our city with pity and compassion or do we say, I'm just so glad I don't live there. I'm so glad I don't have to talk to them. I'm so glad I'm separate. I'm so glad I can just be around Christians all the time. We should redeem opportunities. Jesus himself had a compassionate attitude, as I said, and we see that, especially on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even Paul says he received mercy when he acted in ignorance in 1 Timothy 1 in that little snippet of his biographical background. I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. The book of Jonah ends magnifying the mercy of God not the smallness of Jonah's repentance. It could begin, it could say in 12, then Jonah repented and he understood and thought like God. But I think he's penned this in such a way that it's been, the unexpected has happened again and again through this narrative that it ends in this fashion. Well, just a couple of final points of application and we'll end. What is it that you are unhappy about with God? Is it your career? Is it your parents, you young people? Is it your marriage? Is it your children? Is it your church? Is it lack of peace? Is it lack of joy? All of those things that I've just mentioned are because your eyes are on yourself and not on Christ. 
If you're a born-again Christian, you need to look through the eyes of faith and see the Lord Jesus Christ and see him and to follow him at all costs. To seek to be like him even. To see what he's accomplished on your behalf. Are you given to perfectionism, that everything has to be perfect? Look to Christ. He's done that for you. You're not going to be perfect in this life. In reality, there's a little Jonah lurking in the heart of every Christian. A little bit of pride, a little bit of envy, even being nationalistic, you know, uh, our flag, our nation, uh, coming off the 4th of July. And the reality is judging who can be saved and being a respecter of persons. Who do we think is savable? Is that what's going through our minds? We need to put to death that. May we cultivate hearts of compassion in our workplaces and in our communities and preach the gospel with boldness. We're going to sing in a moment, whatever my God ordains is right. We see three things that God ordained, that God appointed in this text, and it was to bring about the good of Jonah and the repentance of Jonah. It says of our Lord Jesus Christ, In Philippians, a familiar passage, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. Of course, as we know, for this reason, God has highly exalted him and put him in the heavens. We must die to self. In fact, our lives are a constant battle against self. Jonah is a type of Christ. Remember, three days, three nights in the the sea, just like our Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection. He's also a type of believers. Believers who are prone to wonder who are prone to run away from God at times, but God loves us so much that he's not going to leave any of his own. His outstretched arm will come and get you. He will bring about the providence and the circumstances necessary to bring you back. Jesus said the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. If you ever question the repentance of Nineveh in chapter 3, and, you know, sort of cynical and all that, then you have to deal with the words of Jesus. (laughs) Jesus specifically says they did. Secondly, let us consider and have before our mind's eye the wideness of God's mercy. The wideness of his mercy. Let us be like the publican, standing some distance away, unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. How we need to see our bloody Lord through the eyes of faith with his arms stretched out, something that we remember week by week in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper at this particular church, but to see him through the eye of faith, dying and paying for our salvation, paying the penalty that is due our sins, taking our sins, and as it says in Micah, plunging them down into the depths of the ocean, taking our sins, as it were, and putting them as far as the east is from the west so that we're not carrying them on our back 
as a burden anymore. As the Casting Crowns song says, in the arms of your mercy I find rest. I know just how far the east is from the west. One scarred hand to the other to illustrate that our sins are taken away. That as far as east is from the west, which never meets because of the work of Christ. Because he bled and died on the cross for us. And oh, how we need to consider the greater Jonah as we come away from Jonah and to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. And so the question for you, my dear friend, is are you here today and have you not repented of your sins? Some of you young people, well, I keep hearing the same message over and over, but you're not having dealings with God. Oh, how we pray that God would soften your heart and save you. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for this book. Thank you that we could spend nine weeks in this narrative, Lord. We thank you for the multitude of lessons. Lord, uh, we pray that you would make us, sanctify us into those vessels of mercy, that we would be those who exercise compassion, that we would be those who are zealous to preach the gospel at every opportunity that we have. And Lord, we will give you glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.